Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today I'm joined with head and neck surgeon, Dr. Katie Van Abel, and we will be discussing melanoma. Dr. Van Abel, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Dr. Barnes. It's my pleasure. When we talk about melanoma, uh, we're talking about skin cancer, and this can be broken down into uh, melanoma and kind of non-melanoma. So we'll be focusing on the melanoma side of things. And when you see a patient uh, who presents to your clinic with melanoma, how do they typically present? So most of our patients are going to come in saying that they uh, or their significant other noticed a change or a lesion on their skin that seemed sort of abnormal. Uh, In my practice, most patients have been seen by somebody else at that point, but uh, most of the time patients are the ones who are identifying the the abnormal lesion uh, and bringing it to their physician's attention. Um, The things that I'm looking for really are signs for uh, how long it's been there, whether this is an early lesion or a late lesion. Things I might be asking them about are whether there's any itchiness, whether it has been bleeding, whether there's any ulceration, because those might be a sign that it's more of a late uh, presentation. And then when I'm asking patients about it, and when I'm sort of thinking about it, I have to have the ABCDEs of melanoma in my mind. And honestly, as a non-dermatologist, the one that matters the most to me is evolution. So if somebody tells me, you know, I'm a conscientious person, I know that this is different than it was, you know, a year ago, that really raises uh, the alarm bells in my mind a lot more than a slight asymmetry, a change in border, a darker color, multiple colors, or or particularly larger lesion. Uh, That evolution is really key in my mind. And in terms of epidemiology, who are the types of patients who are presenting with melanoma? Well, in my practice in uh, northern Minnesota, that's frankly almost everybody. Uh, But uh, the thing that we want to keep in mind is skin cancer is the most common type of cancer uh, overall. And uh, while melanoma is the least common of the three that we think of, squamous cell carcinoma, basal cell carcinoma, and melanoma, it's the most lethal. Um, And the people that I am concerned about who are going to be coming in with this type of tumor or who are at risk uh, are going to be... Uh, men. Uh, They're going to be in their 50s, 60s, something like that. Uh, And while I find this question to be a little bit uh, difficult to interpret, somebody who has a history of a peeling or blistering sunburn is at higher risk. Uh, I kind of think that's almost everybody and am surprised when people tell me they've never had that type of sunburn before, but that's borne out in studies. Uh, People who have a family history can be at higher risk. Uh, Anyone with a personal history of melanoma is going to have a sustained lifetime increased risk. Someone with multiple clinically atypical moles or those dysplastic nevi. Um, The medical student question, of course, you're always going to be thinking about things like xeroderma, pigmentosa, or Cowden syndrome. Those are much less common, but something that you have to have on your uh, radar. Um, Again, something that I see a lot of are are immunosuppressed patients, somebody who's either got, uh, you know, on some medical immunosuppression, has had an organ transplant or a bone marrow transplant for some reason. Uh, Those uh, folks are going to be at much higher risk. Um, And then finally, our Fitzpatrick skin type is something we have to think about, and we can go into that in our physical exam. Uh, Basically, you want to think about your Fitzpatrick skin type uh, from 1 to 6. You can think of type 1 as 
always burns, never tans, and type 6 says never burns, always tans. Um, and while types 1 through 3 are going to be the most common skin types affected by melanoma, you can develop melanoma in any skin type. So you need to make sure that it's on your, uh, that you're thinking about it regardless of the skin type uh, that you're evaluating. And when you evaluate these patients and you suspect melanoma, what are some questions that you ask in clinic and what are you looking for on physical exam, maybe even apart from just the lesion that you see on their skin? Sure. So the lesion is sort of the easiest thing to look at. It's typically right there on the head and neck. When we look at all melanomas, about 25% of all melanomas are in the head and neck area. Um, And so, uh, you know, I want to take a look at that and get my impression of the size and what it's next to, what I'd need to remove in order to uh, clear it. Um, Then I want to look for lymphadenopathy. So I want to look in the basins that typically drain the lesion that I'm looking at. So whether that's parotid basins, suboccipital nodal basins, or uh, in the neck itself. And so you do your typical uh, neck exam. Um, And then I think one of the harder things is assessing for distant metastatic disease. And that's certainly something I think a lot about for melanoma is how do I get at those questions? And things that I like to ask that I think are somewhat helpful are asking about new or different symptoms. So somebody who comes to me with a a diagnosis of melanoma is certainly going to be anxious. They probably are losing a little weight. They're a little nauseous, that kind of thing. Uh, But a new headache that's really different than something they've had before, and it's been going on uh, for a little bit. Um, New back pain or trouble with their bowel or bladder, something like that. You know, I think that uh, someone who's got uh, new easy Uh, bruising or, you know, uh, difficulty stopping bleeding, something like that. The things that are easier for our patients to answer in a meaningful way are the questions that I try and uh, focus on for metastatic disease. So we talked about presentation, and next I wanted to move on to pathophysiology. Could you tell us a little bit about the pathology that we see in melanoma? When we think about melanoma, we have to take ourselves back to uh, medical school where we really learned about the different layers of the, um, of the epithelium and, and the dermis and uh, thinking about where those melanocytes really live uh, down near the basal layer of the skin. And um, we are going to need to understand uh, what different slides would look like uh, if we were asked to look at a biopsy of melanoma. And this is helpful because when we are interpreting the pathology reports from our uh, pathology colleagues after we've taken a biopsy, it's nice to be able to read more than just the diagnosis, to be able to delve into a little bit about what they actually saw, especially if there's some... um, Uh, a little bit of confusion or some nuance to it. And so the things that you really need to be looking at uh, when you're thinking about uh, reading a PATH report for a biopsy for melanoma is you're looking for these large atypical melanocytes. You're looking for some sort of melanin granules, hyperchromatic nuclei. Sometimes you can see nests of the melanocytes within the epidermis. And once you start seeing that breaking through the basal uh, layer or the basement membrane, that's when you're really going to be calling it an invasive malignant melanoma. Um, We can also see things such as spindle or oval-shaped cells. Sometimes pathologists will uh, refer to um, uh, certain patterns of invasion as pagetoid in pattern, so you may see those words. And um, I think that having a good understanding helps you work hand-in-hand with your colleagues in uh, pathology. What kind of stains are involved with this? Yeah. So the most important stains that uh, we think about when we're talking about 
uh, melanoma are S100, MART1, HMB45, and melan-A. It's often a combination of a few of those stains that really proves the diagnosis of malignant melanoma. And one thing that is uh, helpful to understand is whether or not your frozen section lab or your Mohs colleagues have access to those stains that can be done in sort of a uh, Mohs style fashion while you're doing a wide local excision in the operating room. Because for some of the more nuanced melanomas, having those stains available can really make the difference between taking that next set of margins and not or not. Um, and so I think that all of us as uh, surgeons need to understand what our pathology colleagues have as in their tool set at whatever institution you're at. And uh, can you speak to the relevant genetic genetics surrounding this? Yeah, we're learning more and more about the genetics of melanoma. And it's really interesting that there's some differences uh, in melanomas that form in chronic sun-damaged skin versus those that form in non-chronic sun-damaged skin. Uh, the most common uh, mutation that we're thinking about is our BRAF V600 mutation. And this is uh, helpful to know about because if uh, you test positive for that, there may be some immunotherapy options that are available for those patients. Now, occasionally when I'm looking through or studying melanoma, I'll see a list of different subsets of melanoma. Could you speak to these subsets, maybe uh, briefly describe them and how it applies clinically? Sure. When I was learning about melanoma way back when in medical school, we really focused a lot on the WHO um, designation for different types of melanomas. And uh, it became sort of, you know, confusing because there's things like nodular, superficial spreading, uh, lentigo maligna. And while this terminology is still important to know, uh, it is not used in our uh, staging system. It's not used to define our treatment uh, approach. And the reason is uh, because it's very challenging for dermatologists to agree one dermatologist to the next with a high level of certainty. And so the WHO has recommended that while we still provide some of this information on our pathology reports, and there are certain types of melanomas for which uh, the subset classification is important. For example, um, our uh, desmoplastic melanoma, whether it's pure or mixed, something like that really does make a difference, we think. Uh, for the most part, that's a part of our pathology report, but we're not using it to guide treatment decision-making. And I think that takes some of the stress off of really understanding what each of those uh, different subcategories mean. And when we talk about pathophysiology, one of the questions I like to ask is, what's the natural history of this, of this disease? Why do we need to treat it? And uh, why do we tell patients we need to treat it? Uh, that's a good question. A lot of patients want to know, well, what if I don't do anything? Uh, this is a deadly disease. This is a life-threatening disease. And, and as I said at the beginning of our uh, discussion here, melanoma is the most lethal of the skin cancers that we see and treat. And so typically it'll get larger, it'll bleed, it'll be painful, it becomes harder to remove. We would expect nodal metastatic disease, uh, and we would ultimately expect distant metastatic disease, commonly to the lung, the brain, at, and the bones. Um, and that's why when we start getting a large bulk of disease, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but a large bulk of disease or um, uh, something that's really concerning. When we think about our imaging, we also have to get brain MRIs to make sure that we don't have intracranial metastases. And what else do you put on the differential diagnosis for this? So I think I'd always start with a skin lesion with our top three, so squamous cell carcinoma, basal cell carcinoma, and melanoma. Melanoma is not always darkly pigmented. You can have a melanotic melanoma. 
you could have certainly a benign nevus. You could have some sort of just funny-looking freckle. Um, and you could have a junctional nevus. The list can get quite extensive. I would also strongly recommend everybody when you're thinking about preparing for going into a head neck cancer clinic where you're going to have different skin lesions to really understand that there's more than just squame, uh, basal cell, and melanoma. You can have uh, uh, cancer that forms from any of the subunits of the hair follicle, for example, or um, you know, uh, surrounding structures within the skin unit. And so uh, having a broad differential is important, but most commonly I think of those top three. Sure. So you see this patient in clinic uh, and you suspect a malignancy. Um, I think I'll just uh, let the cat out of the bag. I think the first step is going to be biopsy or trying to figure out what this is. How do you approach um, when you decide to biopsy, how you biopsy, and if you do it in the clinic versus in the operating room? I have a pretty low threshold for biopsying things, and that's uh, because of the nature of what I do. I think a biopsy is fairly low risk. Leaving an undiagnosed melanoma is very high risk, and so I think it's worthwhile to biopsy. There are lots of different ways to biopsy, and I will uh, stop and emphasize that the Getting a diagnosis of melanoma, no matter how you do it, is better than not getting a diagnosis of melanoma. So we have a lot of angst about, oh gosh, this was cut off at the uh, deep portion of the tumor, or we don't know how deep it is. Um, while I always wish that we could do the exact right biopsy for every patient at the exact right time, sometimes our ability to appropriately diagnose these things is an evolution. And so we get folks that have all different types of biopsies. So number one, uh, just getting the tissue under the microscope and finding those things we talked about to start with is the most important. But if I had my preference, I would advocate for a narrow margin excisional biopsy. This leaves the door open for reconstruction. This leaves the door open for uh, wider margins. And most importantly, this leaves the door open for sentinel lymph node biopsy, which we'll talk about shortly. It would allow us to be able to assess the depth of the lesion, and that's one of the most important things when we're talking about staging. You can also think about a punch biopsy, a deep shave biopsy, or, um, or an incisional biopsy. One of the challenges I have with some of those is you don't always know where is the deep, or wh what is the deepest part of the tumor. And when we talk about depth of invasion, we need to compare that to the normal uh, layer of skin. And so uh, it, if you're always punching you know, on the border, you may not be getting the deepest part of the tumor. But again, at least you would know that it was a malignant melanoma and you need to do more and you haven't burned any bridges. Um, and you mentioned staging, and since we talked about biopsy, uh, I thought I'd ask what will be reported uh, from the pathology when you do the biopsy, and how does this inform uh, T-staging? Well, what gets reported is really uh, depends on your pathologist. The American Academy of Pathology, um, I may be saying their organization name wrong, but basically the governing body for pathologists uh, in uh, the U.S. has recommended that they include a lot of the details that aren't necessarily a part of the TNM staging system, but uh, for example, include the margin status, perineural invasion, lymphovascular invasion, whether they see any of these specific WHO subtypes. Uh, they want them to include things like their mitotic rate, which if you look at the newer staging system is no longer a part of the T stage. Um, because all of those things are sort of taken into context, and if we have a lot of red flag high-risk features, we may push for something uh, that we wouldn't have based on just the T-stage, for example. Can you talk to us about Breslow thickness? Sure. So 
again, when we look back to the classic teaching of melanoma, you're thinking about Breslow thickness and you're thinking about Clark's level. Clark's level is no longer a part of the staging system. You may still see that in your pathology report, uh, and it gives you some information, but it's no longer a part of the, the T staging. Breslow thickness is still a part of our T staging, although you don't always see it as that full word anymore. You may just see thickness or depth of invasion. And when we look at our T staging uh, system, uh, you can see that the two most important features for a T stage include uh, thickness and ulceration. So thickness is basically your Breslow depth. And what you're doing is you're uh, looking at the normal um, uh, epithelium and then you're comparing, uh, you're measuring the distance from that to the uh, the deepest portion of the tumor. And that's different than measuring from the mound of tumor that's sitting out top to the deepest portion of the tumor. So it has to be from that adjacent normal uh, skin. Um, and that will drive the T stage. So the overall T stage, T1, 2, 3, 4, is driven by depth of invasion. Uh, the A or B subcategorization for T stage is driven by ulceration. So ulceration always upstages it to a B categorization. Uh, whereas the depth is really what's driving the the number of the T stage. Sure. And what are those numbers? So for T1, you can think about this. I think of T1 less than 1, T4 greater than 4. Then you can go T2 is 1 to 2, T3 is 2 to 4. So if I can get those uh, T1, T, T4 in my mind, then I can sort of place the other ones. The only one that's really tricky is our T1 uh, stage. So T1A is less than 0.8 millimeters, and this is all driven by whether or not we should do a sentinel lymph node biopsy or not. So less than 0.8 millimeters, no ulceration, that's going to give you T1A, and typically you don't need to do a sentinel lymph node biopsy for these folks unless you see some other high-risk features because you were uh, astute and you read your pathology report and, and uh, identified some of those. Uh, T1B is going to be 0.8 to 1.0, and uh, basically anyone uh, greater than 0.8 and on, if there's no clinical evidence of nodal disease, we're going to be thinking about sentinel node biopsy. And once you get a positive diagnosis from a biopsy here, I imagine patients are going to wonder what stage they're in. How do you counsel them on staging, overall staging in melanoma? Sure. So I think melanoma... Um, Again, unfortunately, it's a very common disease, but that means that we've had a lot of research on it and we've got a lot of data. And when we have a lot of data on a cancer diagnosis, it means that our staging system can get uh, more complex because we know more about it. And that's certainly the truth with uh, melanoma. And patients always want to know what stage am I because that's sort of what's driven home to them as the, you know, the most important thing. Are they advanced or did they catch it early? And Basically, I can't tell them exactly what their stage is until we've done their uh, operation. Because for the most part, we are not, uh, we're doing our sentinel lymph node biopsies because we think that the, nodal, the volume of nodal disease will be undetectable with any of our current imaging modalities. So remember that a PET-CT scan, its inferior limit of resolution is somewhere around five to seven millimeters in size. And so if you think that you're going to be detecting microscopic disease on a sentinel lymph node biopsy, it's not the time to be doing a PET-CT scan. And so that's what makes melanoma a little bit confusing because you can have a decently large or deep uh, primary tumor and not necessarily be able to see anything on your PET-CT scan. And so when patients are asking me what stage they're at, I, I have to sort of bro uh, paint broad strokes 
strokes to start with. And I think it's helpful to uh, break up the staging system into something that at least uh, resonates in my mind. And then when I need to get very specific about exactly which stage, I can pull up the staging system and look. But basically, stage one is going to be localized, thin melanoma, so T2A or less, and no lymph nodes. Uh, stage two is also no lymph nodes, but we're getting into a little medium thick or thicker melanomas, so T2B to T4B. But basically, stage one and stage two are localized disease. Stage three has metastatic disease to lymph nodes, so regional disease, and then stage four is going to be metastatic disease. So stage three regional disease, stage four metastatic disease, and I can generally uh, give people an idea of what their staging is, but I always have to tell them there's no way I'm going to be able to give you a final answer until we're completely done with your surgery and your workup. So if that's the case, how do you know when to obtain imaging and how does it apply in this context? Yeah, I think that this is uh, something where it's really helpful, at least when you're starting off in practice, to you know keep your... Uh, guidelines up and available that sort of help you through this, but stage uh, up to stage two. So remember we said that that includes T4B tumors, but no obvious lymphadenopathy, so nothing you can feel with your hands. Uh, they do not need imaging pre-op, and I think that this is a really uncomfortable uh, realization when you're uh, starting off in practice that you can have a pretty deep a nasty looking tumor on the top of someone's head and you don't necessarily need any imaging. Uh, if you can't get a good exam for some reason, you could consider an ultrasound or something like that, but you have to recall that that's not a substitute for a sentinel lymph node biopsy. Our sentinel lymph node biopsy is actually part of our diagnostic workup, so while it's an invasive procedure and it is not you know, exactly the same as an imaging modality, it is something that we use as a diagnostic tool. Um, so, no, we don't necessarily need any imaging for up to stage 2 disease. Anyone, though, that has symptoms, something that's concerning you, something that, you know, raised a flag for you that you were worried about, if you can feel any lymphadenopathy, uh, or if we're sort of down the road a little bit and you did have a positive sentinel lymph node biopsy, for those folks who are going to be thinking about imaging. Um, so anyone with regional disease, anyone with uh, clinically palpable disease or any symptoms you're worried about. And so for what imaging to consider, you have a few options available to you. Uh, chest, abdomen, pelvis CT with IV contrast are very acceptable, is, is an acceptable uh, route to go. I often go with a PET CT scan because it's a single study, it's done quickly. Uh, but I have to remember that with both of those, chest, abdomen, pelvis, CT, or a PET CT scan, I have not adequately imaged the brain. And so if I'm worried, if there's big bulky, uh, bulky disease, if there's regional lymphadenopathy, if someone's complaining of a new headache or you know, some, some intracranial or CNS-related finding, we need to get a brain MRI scan in order to fully work that up. Um, and then the last thing is, is you know, if I'm going to do a PET CT scan and there's a node that's a bit funny in there, or I, you know, I just I, I'd like to see the anatomy a bit better. I do have the ability to get a CT neck with contrast as well, uh, which will help me with my uh, surgical planning. And one more question while we wrap up the workup part of this uh, discussion: What are some other considerations for melanoma that don't always apply to? to other lesions like in-transit METs, microsatellites, macro METs? Mm -hmm. 
So before we can even answer that question, we have to define those terms a little bit. An in-transit metastasis is a nodule of tumor that you can see with your eyes typically on your physical exam. That's more than two centimeters away from the primary tumor site, but not beyond the nearest lymph node basin. So let's say you have a vertex scalp lesion. Uh, this in-transit met would be somewhere you know, between that lesion and the parotid basin, somewhere in the skin. Well, let's say we have that same lesion and it's down in the neck. It's in the neck skin and you biopsy it, it's melanoma. That's a dermal metastasis. That's not an in-transit metastasis. And the reason that, uh, that those things have to be differentiated is because the treatment's different and the staging's different. We would not consider someone with in-transit metastases as having distant metastatic disease. Um, if you look at the nodal staging system, it's very complex, and the in-transit metastasis increase the amount of nodal burden and go into the in-staging system, not the M-staging system. Uh, so that's what we think about for in-transit mets. For microsatellitosis, this is something that you're not going to be able to see with your eyes. You're going to have to rely on your pathologist to uh, look at this uh, during their assessment of the primary tumor. And basically, this is a nest of tumor cells that are greater than 0.05 millimeters in diameter, located in the reticular dermis, uh, or near the paniculus or vessels, and it's separated from the primary tumor by at least 0.3 millimeters. And again, you're never going to see that. It has to be looked at with a microscope. When you hear the word macrometastases, just think you're going to feel these or you're going to be able to see them on imaging. Uh, so macrometastases are something that you can see or feel with your uh, hands. Micrometastases, you need a microscope to see. So I next wanted to move on to treatment, but I like what you said about the sentinel lymph node biopsy, because although we're moving into treatment, we'll start to talk about the resection of the primary lesion. Also, when we're in the operating room, we'll be doing some diagnostic work as well with sentinel lymph node biopsy. So to start, how do you plan on approaching the resection of the primary tumor? Sure. So I think that that's helpful because as a, especially as a resident or as, you know, for myself, I have to think about what am I going to list this patient for for surgery? What things do I need to be thinking about? Um, and, it, you know, it starts with uh, where the tumor is on their, um, in their head and neck. Um, and based on that and uh, my understanding of the lymphatic drainage patterns, I can have a pretty good idea of where the tumor is likely to drain to. Um, and so with that in mind, I may consent someone for a superficial parotidectomy, possible total parotidectomy, possible neck dissection. Uh, so those are the three things that are most commonly on my uh, listing uh, for that case. I want to be thinking about how I'm going to get that person to a, a lymphocentigraphy. And at our institution, we can do that the afternoon before, as long as I put that patient on fairly close to first case the next day. Sometimes that can be nice because you don't have to delay your uh, operation. Or I'm doing same-day lymphocentigraphy. So they go to the lymphocentigraphy suite that morning, and then I'm taking them to the operating room later that afternoon. And basically what's happening there is the uh, radiologist is injecting uh, a material that goes through the lymphatic system, goes uh, to the sentinel node, so the, that can be one or two lymph nodes, um, uh, or uh, a grouping of one or two lymph nodes, and it's going to show you what drains that region first. And this is why, again, it's helpful to do a narrow margin excisional biopsy instead of a wide uh, excisional biopsy, because hopefully you're disrupting those local lymphatics the least amount possible. 
Um, so I would think about when I'm going to get that person their lymphocytography. Uh, I'm going to get that scheduled for them. I'm going to take a look at the results from that uh, lymphocytography. And typically, I don't have that till we're in the operating room. Uh, and then we will put an X on their skin so that I know uh, approximately where anatomically those uh, nodes sit. And I'm going to have the images up so that I can reference them as well. Um, and what I want to emphasize is that the sentinel lymph node biopsy, the goal of it is to be as minimally invasive as possible to get the information that we need and to do it as safely as possible. So if I need to do a superficial parotidectomy to get that one sentinel lymph node biopsy out because I can't do it safely without getting uh, working around the facial nerve, I'll go ahead and do that operation. Um, whereas if I can get to the sentinel node without doing that, that's preferable. But I think before you engage in going in to do the sentinel node biopsy, you have to be prepared to do all of the next steps. And how do you know when to perform a sentinel lymph node biopsy? That's a great question because I think it also emphasizes whether we should be taking somebody to the operating room or not. Uh, in my mind, what I can offer as a head and neck surgeon uh, is that I can complete the lymph node assessment at the same time as the wide local excision. Uh, but if a sentinel node biopsy is not necessary, it's often nice for our patients who are uh, often a bit older or immunosuppressed or something like that to have MOs and then they don't have to uh, go under general anesthesia. So I think it's really a hand-in-hand -hand operation with uh, your dermatology colleagues. Uh, but when we're thinking about sentinel lymph node biopsy, basically if we look at back at our T stage, anyone that, who's T1B or higher meets criteria for a sentinel lymph node biopsy if they don't have any obvious metastatic disease or obvious nodal disease. If they have either of those things, it doesn't make any sense to be offering that person a sentinel lymph node biopsy because we already know they've metastasized. What about T1A? That's the one that often is the head scratcher. And basically, our risk of having a pathologically positive node and a clinically node-negative neck is about less than it's 5% or less. The things that would drive up my concern for those patients are if there's perineural invasion, lymphovascular invasion, if this is a recurrent uh, lesion, something like that. Um, those would make me a little bit more concerned and maybe think about a sentinel node biopsy for a T1A patient, but typically T1 B or higher, I'm thinking about that. And as a resident, I always ask myself the question, how do you know what your margins are on your primary tumor? Do you mm -hmm. have a general rule that you follow for this? Absolutely. So we've sort of thought about what we're going to do when we go into the operating room. We're going to take out the primary tumor. We're going to do a sentinel node biopsy. We've prepared the patient by setting them up for lymphocytography either the night before or the morning of. Uh, we're prepared to do the completion lymphadenectomy if our pathologist notes uh, melanoma on their frozen pathology. And that's something we can talk about a little bit here in a second because that's different institution to institution as well. But uh, now we're sort of standing in the operating room looking at the patient. What do we do next? The first thing we're going to do is we're going to inject methylene blue because a sentinel lymph node biopsy is a two-stage uh, or two-signal type procedure. And our radiologists, thankfully, have injected uh, our radioisotope for our lymphocytography. And now it's our turn to inject the methylene blue. There's specific uh, procedures that we can go through to talk about that, but it's a little bit challenging just over audio. Um, 
But basically what we want to do is create a visual marker for ourselves. Um, and so before I do the methylene blue, I want to look at the tumor and make sure that I can see the edges. I want to mark out the edges of the actual tumor because it might be a little bit hard to discern for some lesions after I inject the methylene blue. I'm going to go ahead and inject the methylene blue and then continue doing my prep work uh, for uh, however long it takes just because that will give me time if I do the methylene blue up front to allow it to reach the sentinel node ideally. Some people will talk about having the patient in a little bit of a head-up position to have gravity help us get the methylene blue uh, to the nodes. I don't think that's always necessary, but it's certainly something you could think about. Then we get to our margins. So now I've injected my methylene blue. I'm letting that sort of percolate, and now I have to think about where I'm going to mark out these uh, margins. Um, we have some data that can drive our decision-making, and I, I think there's a really nice uh, systematic review that was published uh, by Dr. Zhang and colleagues. Uh, sorry, by Dr. Zanga and colleagues, which I think is helpful to me for head and neck uh, melanoma. And uh, basically, uh, bottom line is I aim for somewhere between one and two centimeters, if at all possible. But if I have an in situ melanoma, I'm typically not taking that person to the operating room, but if I did, it would be somewhere between five millimeters and, and a centimeter. If I have a really thin melanoma, so a T1B, T1A, T1B uh, tumor that I'm taking to the operating room, I could potentially get away with one centimeter margins. There's some data to suggest that that may be safe. Uh, but um, there's more and more literature out there that uh, perhaps there's a higher risk of local recurrence when we start pushing the envelope on that one centimeter margin. As you know, when we're operating in the face, there are critical structures that are hard to resect or um, unacceptable to resect. So we're always trying to balance oncologic cure with acceptable aesthetic and functional outcomes. Uh, but I feel comfortable if I'm somewhere within that one to two centimeters, leaning towards the two centimeter mark for margins, if at all possible. And you mentioned a uh, positive neck nodes. How do you approach uh, either clinically positive neck or when you do have a positive sentinel lymph node biopsy? Okay, so for a clinically positive neck, uh, I would have gotten some imaging that would also help me understand whether there's any other lymphadenopathy in the adjacent regions. Uh, but typically, you're looking at the involved nodal level, and you want to clean out at least the levels uh, uh, in front and behind it, uh, and the levels that make the most sense as draining the lesion of interest. So let's say you had a cheek melanoma, and I have a parotid uh, nodal metastasis. I need to clean out that whole parotid nodal basin. Now that includes the superficial and the deep lobe. There was some data where people were talking about these being two separate nodal basins. That's not accurate. It's a single nodal basin with 90, 80 to 90% of the nodes in that basin sitting lateral to or superficial to the facial nerve and 10 to 20% of the nodes sitting deep to the facial nerve. Um, and so the NCCN guidelines recognize this now that if you have the skill set uh, and comfort to be able to do a total parotidectomy, that is... Um, uh, beneficial to the patient to prevent regional recurrent disease. Um, and then you would go ahead and do probably level two and three because those would be the next two logical levels underneath the parotid. But it really depends on where the lesion is. And then as far as what to do with the positive sentinel lymph node biopsy, that really comes down to whether or not you're going to get that result at the time of your initial operation or whether you get it uh, resulted back to you in a delayed fashion. Most uh, institutions are going to have that come out in a delayed fashion because there's some risk of having a false negative sentinel lymph node biopsy uh, at the time of your frozen section analysis. Um, 
we our typical practice is that we still will uh, look at it under frozen section, and we have a pretty uh, low rate of needing to do a revision operation, but it's still something that I counsel my patients on, revision being that in a delayed fashion, we identified a positive sentinel node biopsy. But then I would say once you get that uh, sentinel node, you really need to think, if I had gotten this in the operating room, what was my plan going to be? And you should still do the plan that you had that in that first operative day. So if I get a positive sentinel node, I'm going to go back and try and do a completion lymphadenectomy unless there's something that uh, is restricting me being able to do that. Is the patient too sick? Are they absolutely against it? Something like that. The last thing I'll point out is there's some growing literature that the volume of disease in that sentinel node matters. And so if you have less than 10% of the node involved with tumor, it is pretty unlikely that you're going to have any other nodes when you do your completion lymphadenectomy that have tumor in them. And so you could potentially make a case for observing a patient with a very small volume micrometastatic positive uh, sentinel node. And what's the role of radiation therapy in melanoma? Interesting, there's not a huge role for radiation. And if we do a good operation with uh, good margins, there's almost no role for adjuvant radiation to the primary site. And this is helpful to think about when you're thinking about your reconstruction, especially on the scalp, because if we're ever thinking about adjuvant radiation therapy, we don't want to be skin grafting over the calvarium or leaving exposed calvarium to granulate in. In that case, you would want to be putting some sort of vascularized tissue over the bed. But for the most part, we don't need to be thinking about adjuvant radiation therapy to the primary site unless there's some extenuating circumstances or you know, large uh, caliber perineural invasion, something like that. Um, but typically, we are only thinking about this if we can't operate on the patient, they're too sick, uh, resecting the disease would be, you know, incur too high morbidity to the patient or they're not willing to accept it. Or if we end up with positive margins and we just can't resect any further, those would be reasons to think about adjuvant radiation therapy to the primary site. What about radiation therapy to regional disease? So there are some pretty specific guidelines uh, available for our radiation oncologists and for us as to when adjuvant therapy is indicated. I would say whenever you have a question, reach out to your radiation oncologist. We're better when we work together as a team. But typically, it's uh, any time you have extranodal extension. Uh, and if you have a lymph node, uh, one or more lymph nodes within the parotid uh, of any size and uh, two or more lymph nodes within the neck, or if you have a three centimeter or greater uh, volume of tumor within a neck lymph node, then those would all be indications for adjuvant radiation therapy to the nodal basin. Um, additionally, you can think about uh, radiation in palliative settings when you can't do any additional operation. Can you speak a bit to the systemic therapy that's sometimes offered in folks with melanoma? I think there's a lot of exciting things happening in melanoma. We're learning a lot more about immunotherapy. We're learning about vaccine trials. And, um, you know, I think that there's going to be a lot changing in our lifetime of treating this disease. And again, when in doubt, reach out to your medical oncologist. There may be trials that you're not aware of that our patients can qualify for. Typically, these are going to be stage two or higher uh, patients. Uh, but uh, typically, we're thinking about uh, immunotherapy for patients or adjuvant therapy for patients for metastatic or unresectable disease. It really doesn't play a major role in adjuvant therapy for local regional disease. Um, and our two most common, or um, th the two sort of areas that we're thinking about for immunotherapy are uh, drugs that target the uh, PD1, PDL1 uh, ligand, like 
pembrolizumab or nivolumab, or we have some targeted therapy towards that mutation, the BRAF V600 uh, mutation such as dabrafenib uh, or uh, vemurafenib. Uh, those are both interesting drug choices as well. And one other question I wanted to ask going back to um, the treatment of the neck and as we kind of uh, move into prognosis and outcomes, uh, how does treatment of an affected neck affect outcomes? So that is a very challenging question uh, and it's uh, unsettling to answer in some ways. So uh, you could say, well, gosh, I did such a great job. I did my sentinel lymph node. I found this positive node. I took it out. I should have affected their long-term survival. And the answer, unfortunately, to date is no. We don't affect their cancer-specific or overall survival by doing our lymph node dissection. But by identifying this lymph node as being involved, uh, you've done a great service to identifying the most important prognostic factor for that patient and perhaps getting them on a closer surveillance schedule uh, or uh, uh, opening the doors to immunotherapy. But we do know that uh, doing your completion lymph node dissection or doing your sentinel lymph node biopsy and identifying uh, the tumor sooner rather than later uh, decreases our regional uh, failure, so it increases our local regional control. And um, you might say, well, if I find it today versus if I find it two years from now, what difference does it really make? And in the head and neck, it can make a difference. If you have tumor growing in the deep lobe of the parotid and all of a sudden the patient's face is paralyzed, that's not something that we should be saying is okay. Identifying that lymph node during your total parotidectomy and being able to get that out and preventing that sequela from progression of disease in the local regional nodal basins, I think is uh, offers a benefit to our patients. But we have to be very clear that we have no evidence that doing any of our uh, lymph node management affects long-term cancer-specific or overall survival. And regarding outcomes in uh, survival for melanoma, how do you counsel patients on what they should expect depending on the extent of their disease? You know, this is also something that's changing, and I think, as again, as we learn more of our, about our treatment options, that'll be changing. But typically, uh, you know, sort of a gestalt view, T1 tumors do very well. Five-year survival should be somewhere in the 90% range. Uh, we know that as tumors get deeper and, and have more aggressive features, so T2 to T4, again, still N0, so no nodal disease, we're going to drop our five-year survival. We've got reports anywhere from 50 to 90% five-year survival for those patients. As soon as we have a node present, this significantly drops our overall survival. So you'll see ranges now 20 to 70%. So historically, we're, we were taught that a patient walking in the door, if you can feel an involved lymph node, it drops their survival to 50% off the bat. That doesn't hold true for all tumors, but it certainly holds true for melanoma. So it, it is the, mo the most important prognostic feature. And then for somebody that presents with distant metastatic disease, their five-year over, overall survival was typically 10% or less. But again, that is hopefully going to be changing here. And how do you follow up with these patients? Um, again, 
you know, you always think, well, I should be getting imaging, I should be getting PET scans, those types of things. And uh, the answer is no for a lot of our melanoma patients. For all melanoma patients, we really need to do some education and emphasize these common follow-up recommendations. So patients should be getting an at least annual skin exam for life, and we really need to advocate uh, or educate our patients about that because they often say, well, I got my melanoma treated. I don't ever have to go back to the dermatologist or the primary care physician who does their skin exam. That's not true. They really need to be doing this annual skin exam for life. if there are certain risk factors, if this is recurrent, if they've had a couple melanomas, you know, if there's something really concerning, they're immunosuppressed, you're going to want to follow those folks up a lot closer. So you're, uh, I have some patients that have skin exams uh, every quarter, so every three months or so. Um, if for some reason you offered a sentinel lymph node biopsy and the patient uh, didn't want to do it or you tried to do it but it just didn't drain anywhere, their lymphatics, who knows what happened, but it didn't drain, didn't work, or you had a positive sentinel lymph node biopsy but for some reason weren't able to go back and do your completion lymph node dissection, you can offer regional lymph node ultrasounds and typically those are offered every three to 12 months for the first two to three years. Now that's a pretty broad range and you'll have to adjust it for your patient and your concern, uh, but that's something that um, you can offer. Um, A lot of patients want to know, should they go see a geneticist? Uh, Should they send their family to see a geneticist? And uh, really uh, there's pretty strict uh, recommendations on when we should make that consult. Uh, so for folks who have three or more invasive melanomas, if they have any history of pancreatic cancer or a diagnosis of astrocytoma in their family, then I'd send them over to the uh, geneticist. But again, we're all a team. I think that uh, if you have questions, you can reach out and call your local geneticist and see if they have anything to offer. Well, this has been a super helpful discussion, Dr. Van Abel. Thank you so much. Before I go into my summary, is there anything you'd want to add? Uh, no, just um, remember that melanomas tricky. It's confusing. It's okay to reference the literature. It's okay to have a cheat sheet for your staging system available. Even um, being in practice where we're taking care of these patients frequently, it's still, you know, you still need to be able to reach out to your references and things are changing. We're learning things. uh, So staying up to date on your literature is going to be important. So in summary, melanoma commonly presents in those who are older with significant sun exposure, and they have a lesion that classically follows those A, B, C, D, and E's. Pathophysiology includes invasive, large, atypical melanocytes that stain for S100, MART1, and HMB45. Workup includes biopsy and possible imaging for more advanced disease, and treatment includes resection of the primary lesion, as well as possibly addressing the lymph node basin, either with uh, lymphadenectomy or sentinel lymph node biopsy in stages 1B or 2 disease. Systemic therapy uh, is also rising. This could be in the form of PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors or BRAF-activating medications. And prognosis is generally very good for early-stage disease but becomes significantly worse with advanced disease. Dr. Van Abel, anything you'd like to add? Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Barnes. This has been a great review of melanoma in a nutshell. (laughs) Thank you. And now I'll move on to uh, the question-asking portion of our time. Uh, as a reminder, I'll ask a question, uh, wait a few seconds, and then uh, give the response. So the first question is, describe some of the common features of the histopathology of melanoma. 
There are a lot of buzzwords for the histopathology of melanoma, and these include large atypical melanocytes, melanin granules, hyperchromatic nuclei, and nests of melanocytes in the epidermis. They can have a pagetoid pattern, but most importantly, there are atypical melanocytes that are invading beyond the basal layer, which makes this malignant. And these will stain positive for S100, MART1, HMB45, and melan A. Our next question is, describe the T-staging of melanoma. T-staging of melanoma is as follows. T1A is less than 0.8 millimeters. T1B is 0.8 to 1.0 millimeters. However, if it's less than 0.8 millimeters with ulceration, uh, that would fall into the T1B category. T2 is 1 to 2 millimeters, T3 is 2 to 4 millimeters, and T4 is greater than 4 millimeters depth of invasion. Our next question is, when is sentinel lymph node biopsy warranted? Sentinel lymph node biopsy is indicated in T1B disease or greater when there is no clinically evident neck disease. And for our final question, what are the desired margins in melanoma resection of the primary lesion? As Dr. Van Abel said, we usually shoot for uh, one to two centimeters, but to be more specific uh, in our margin resection, if it's uh, melanoma in situ, we're looking for 0.5 to 1.0 centimeters. If it's less than one millimeter, we're looking for one centimeter. If it's one to two millimeters, we're looking for one to two centimeters of um, margins. And if it's greater than two millimeters, we're looking for two centimeters of margins. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.